Chapter 7 of The Tribulations of a Chinaman in China. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Tribulations of a Chinaman in China by Jules Fern. Translated by Virginia Champlin. Chapter 7 which would be very sad if it did not treat of ways and customs peculiar to the celestial empire. Whatever the Honorable William J. Bidolph might think and say, the funds of the centenary were very seriously threatened. Indeed, Kin Fo's plan was not of that kind which, on reflection, one postpones executing indefinitely. Being utterly ruined, Wang's pupil had thoroughly resolved to end an existence which, even in the time of his prosperity, brought him only sadness and ennui. The letter which was not delivered for a week by soon came from San Francisco and gave notice of the suspension of payment of the Central Bank of California. Now Kin Fo's fortune consisted almost entirely, as we know, of stock in this celebrated bank, which had previously been so sound. But the situation was not to be doubted. Improbable as the news might seem, it was unhappily only too true. The suspension of the central bank had just been confirmed by journals received at Shanghai. The failure had been declared, and Kin Fo was wholly ruined. Indeed, what remained to him outside of the stocks in this bank? Nothing, or almost nothing. The sale of his house at Shanghai, which it would be almost impossible to bring about, would give him a sum insufficient for an income. The $8,000 premium paid into the centenary, a small amount of stock in the boat company of Tianjin, which, if sold that day, would furnish him with hardly enough to carry on things in extremis, now comprised his sole fortune. A Western man, Frenchman or Englishman, would have taken this new state of things philosophically, perhaps, and would have begun life over again seeking to repair his fortunes by assiduous labor. But a celestial would think and act quite differently. It was voluntary death that Kin Fo, as a true Chinaman, without compunctions of conscience, and with that typical indifference which characterizes the yellow race, was meditating as a means of getting out of his troubles. The Chinaman has only a passive courage, but this courage he possesses in the highest degree. His indifference to death is truly extraordinary. When he is ill, he sees it approach and does not falter. When condemned and already in the hands of an officer, he manifests no fear. The frequent public executions, the sight of the horrible torments which are part of the penal laws in the celestial empire, have early familiarized the sons of heaven with the idea of renouncing the things of this world without regret. Therefore, one will not be astonished to find that in every family this thought of death is the order of the day, and the subject of many conversations, and has an influence over the most ordinary acts of life. The worship of ancestors is also observed by the poorest people. There is not a wealthy home where a sort of domestic sanctuary has not been set apart, and no hut so wretched but some corner has been kept for the relics of ancestors, in whose honor a day is celebrated in the second month. That is why one finds in the same store where are sold babies' cribs and wedding gifts 
a varied assortment of coffins, which form a staple article in Chinese trade. The purchase of a coffin is, indeed, one of the constant preoccupations of the celestials. The furniture of a house would be incomplete if a coffin were wanting, and the son makes it a duty to offer one to his father in the latter's lifetime, which is a touching proof of tenderness. This coffin is placed in a special room. It is ornamented and taken care of, and generally, when it has received mortal remains, is kept with pious care for years. In short, respect for the dead is the foundation of Chinese religion, and tends to bind family ties more closely. Kin Fo, owing to his temperament, was considering, with more perfect tranquillity than another would have had, the thought of ending his days. He had ensured the fate of the two beings to whom his affections turned. Therefore, what had he now to regret? Nothing. Suicide could not even cause him remorse. What is a crime in civilized countries of the West is only a lawful act, we might say, with this strange people of Eastern Asia. Kin Fo's decision was then made, and no influence could turn him from carrying out his project, not even that of the philosopher Wang. But the latter was absolutely ignorant of his pupil's designs. Soon was no better acquainted with them, and had observed but one thing, that since his return Kin Fo showed himself more tolerant of his daily stupidities. Positively, Soon was coming to the conclusion that he could not find a better master, and now his precious pigtail wriggled on his back in unwanted security. A Chinese proverb says, To be happy on earth, one must live at Canton and die at Liao Tzu. It is indeed true that at Canton one finds every luxury of life, and at Liao Tzu the best coffins are manufactured. Kin Fo did not fail to leave an order with the best house that his last bed of repose might arrive in time. To have a proper couch for the eternal sleep is the constant thought of every celestial who knows how to live. Kin Fo, at the same time, bought a white cock, whose part, as one knows, is to embody departing spirits and seize in their flight one of the seven elements of which a Chinese soul is composed. One sees that if the pupil of the philosopher Wang showed himself indifferent to the details of life, he was much less so to those of death. That being done, he had only to arrange the program for his funeral, and that very day a beautiful sheet of paper, called rice paper, in whose composition rice is entirely foreign, received Kin Fo's last will. After having bequeathed his house in Shanghai to the young widow, and a portrait of the Taiping chief to Wang, which the philosopher had always looked upon with pleasure, and having done this without injury to the policy of the centenary, Kin Fo traced with a firm hand the order of march of the persons who were to attend the obsequies. First, in default of relations, of which he had none, a party of friends, which he had, were to appear at the head of the cortege, dressed in white, the color of mourning in China. Through the streets, as far out as the country about the old tomb, a double row of servants, charged with the burial, would file. They would bear different symbols, blue parasols, halberds, scepters, silk screens, written documents with the details of the ceremony, and be dressed in a black tunic with a white belt, 
and wear a black felt cap with red aigrets on their heads. Behind the first group of friends would walk a guide, dressed in scarlet from head to foot, beating a gong, and preceding the portrait of the deceased, which would be lying in a sort of decorated shrine. Then a second group of friends would follow, whose part it is to faint at regular intervals on cushions prepared for the occasion. Finally, a last group of young men, screened under a blue and gold canopy, would strow the road with little pieces of white paper, pierced with a hole, like sapiques, which were intended to lure away the evil spirits that might be tempted to join the funeral procession. Then the catafalque would appear, an enormous palanquin hung in violet silk, and embroidered with gold dragons, which fifty valets would bear on their shoulders between a double row of bonzes. The priests, clad in robes of gray, red, or yellow, would follow, reciting prayers in the intervals between the thunder of gongs, the shrill tooting of flutes, and the noisy din of trumpets six feet long. At last the mourners' carriages, draped in white, would bring up the rear of this gorgeous procession, the expenses of which must exhaust the last resources of the opulent corpse. There was really nothing extraordinary in this program. Many funerals of this class passed through the streets of Canton, Shanghai, or Pekin, and the Celestials see in them only a natural homage rendered to the remains of him who is no more. On the 20th of October, a box, expressed from Liao Chu, and addressed to Kin Fo, reached his house at Shanghai. It contained the coffin he had ordered, which was carefully packed. Neither Wang, nor Sun, nor any of the servants in the Yamen felt any cause for surprise, for, we repeat, there is not a Chinaman who does not long to possess in his lifetime the bed in which he will be laid to rest for eternity. This coffin, a chef d'oeuvre from the manufactory of Liao Chu, was placed in the ancestor's chamber. There, after being brushed, waxed, and polished, it would usually, no doubt, have waited a long while for the day when the pupil of the philosopher Wang would have utilized it on his own account. It was not so ordained, however, for Kin Fo's days were numbered, and the hour was near that would add him to the list of his family ancestors. Indeed, this was the very evening when he had determined to die. A letter had arrived that day from the afflicted Liu, who offered him the little that she possessed. Fortune was nothing to her. She could do without it. She loved him, and what did he wish more? Could they not be happy in more modest circumstances? This letter, which expressed the most sincere affection, did not modify Kin Fo's resolution. My death alone can enrich her, he thought. It now remained to decide where and how this last act should be performed, and Kin Fo experienced a sort of pleasure in planning the details, for he hoped that at the last moment an emotion, however fleeting, would make his heart beat. Within the enclosure of the yamen rose four pretty kiosks, ornamented in the fanciful manner characteristic of Chinese decorators. They bore significant names, the Pavilion of Happiness, which Kin Fo never entered, the Pavilion of Fortune, which he scorned, the Pavilion of Pleasure, whose gates had long been closed to him, and the Pavilion of Long Life, which he had resolved to destroy. 
It was this last one that instinct led him to choose, and he resolved to shut himself up in it at nightfall, and it was there the next day they would find him happy in death. This point being settled, in what manner should he die? Stab himself like a Japanese? Strangle himself with a silken girdle like a mandarin? Open his veins in a perfumed bath like an epicurean in ancient Rome? No, these methods would seem brutal and painful to his friends and servants. One or two grains of opium mixed with a subtle poison would be sufficient to take him from this world to the next. While unconscious, perhaps, he would pass away in one of those dreams which convert slumber into eternal sleep. The sun was already beginning to sink below the horizon, and Kin Fo had only a few moments more to live. He wished to take a last walk and see once more the country around Shanghai and the shores of the Huangpo, on which he had so often walked away his ennui. Alone, without having even caught a glimpse of Wang that day, he left the yamen to return once more and never leave it again. He crossed the English territory, the little bridge over the creek, and the French concession with an indolent step, which he did not care to hasten in this last hour. Passing along the wharf of the native port, he wound around the Shanghai Wall as far as the Roman Catholic Cathedral, whose cupola overlooks the southern portion of the country. Then he bore to the right, and quietly ascended the road to the pagoda at Long Hao. Here was the vast flat country which extends to the shadowy heights which bound the valley of the Min. It was an immense swamp which agricultural industry had converted into rice fields. Here and there were a network of canals filled by the tide and a few wretched villages in which the reed huts were cemented with yellowish mud and two or three fields of wheat banked up above the reach of the water. The narrow paths were frequented by a large number of dogs and white goats, ducks and geese, and whenever a pedestrian disturbed their sport, the former would scamper off on all fours, and the latter flap their wings and fly away. The richly cultivated country, whose aspect could not astonish a native, would, however, have attracted the attention of a stranger, and perhaps repelled him, for everywhere were seen coffins by the hundreds, to say nothing of the mounds whose turf covered the dead buried at last forever. One saw only piles of oblong boxes and pyramids of beers and layers like planks in a shipbuilder's yard. For the Chinese plain on the outskirts of the towns is only a vast cemetery where the dead as well as the living encumber the ground. It is asserted that the burial of these coffins is forbidden so long as one dynasty occupies the throne of the Son of Heaven. And these dynasties last centuries. Whether the prohibition be true or not, it is a fact that corpses lying in their coffins, some of which are painted in bright colors, some somber and modest, some new and smart looking and others already falling to dust, wait years for the day of burial. Kin Fo was by no means astonished at this state of affairs, and he walked on without looking around him, so that two strangers, dressed like Europeans, who had followed him from the time he left the Yamen, did not even attract his attention. He did not see them, although they seemed desirous of not losing sight of him. They kept at some distance, following him, 
walking when he walked, stopping when he stopped. At times these two men exchanged peculiar looks and a couple of words, and it was very evident that they were there to watch him. Of medium height, not over thirty, active and well set, one would have called them two pointers with sharp eyes and fleet limbs. Kin Fo, after walking around the country for a league, retraced his steps in order to reach the shores of Huang Po. The two bloodhounds followed immediately. Kin Fo, on his way home, met two or three beggars of the most forlorn aspect and bestowed alms upon them. A short distance beyond, several Christian Chinese women, trained to their charitable profession by the French Sisters of Charity, crossed the road. They were carrying home poor little waifs in a basket on their back. They have been appropriately called the rag-pickers of children. And what are these unfortunate little ones but rags scattered in the gutter? Kin Fo emptied his purse into the hands of these sisters, who seemed rather surprised at this act on the part of a celestial. By the time he reached Shanghai on his way home and was returning by the way of the wharf, it was evening, and the floating population were still astir. Shouting and singing came to his ears from every side. He listened intently, eager to know what would be the last words to fall on his ear in this life. A young Tankadere, guiding her sampan through the somber waters of Wang Po, was singing the following ditty. With bark and bright colors embellished, with thousands of flowers, in rapture I wait him, who comes back to-morrow. See God, watch and guard him, while he is returning, and help him to hasten to me. He will return to-morrow, and I? Where shall I be? thought Kin Fo, shaking his head. The young Tankadere resumed. He sailed far, far from me, perhaps to the country of Manchu, the great wall of China. O oh, heart! How thou tremblest at thought of him braving the storm. Kin Fo still listened, but this time said nothing. The singer concluded, Why sailed he, inviting disaster, to die so without me? Come, priest is waiting to join the same moment our emblems, the phoenix. Come, come, I so love thee, and thou lovest me. Yes, perhaps riches are not everything in this world, he murmured but life is not worth living. Half an hour later he entered his house. The two strangers who had followed him till then were obliged to stop. Kin Fo quietly proceeded to the kiosk of long life, opened the door, closed it again, and found himself alone in a little salon, lighted by a lantern of ground glass which shed a soft glow around. On a table which was made of a single piece of jade, stood a box containing a few grains of opium mixed with a deadly poison. I have ready, which the wealthy Anue kept always on hand. Kin Fo took up two of these grains, put them in one of those red clay pipes which opium smokers are in the habit of using, and began to light it. Why, how is this? said he. Not even an emotion in this moment, when I am about to fall asleep, never to wake again. He hesitated a moment. No, he cried, throwing down his pipe on the floor, which broke it in pieces. That supreme emotion I must have. 
even if it be but an attempt. I must have it, and I will have it. And leaving the kiosk, he proceeded to Wang's room, walking faster than usual. End of chapter 7 Recording by Tom Barron